a botched cancer diagnosis, a medication overdose, the wrong limb operated on. Medical errors can be stomach-churning, devastating, life-altering. And they happen more than most people realize. In fact, one out of every four hospitalized Medicare patients are victims of an error. Over the past two decades, a growing number of hospitals have adopted practices that disclose medical mistakes and offer support to the people who must cope with the often tragic consequences. Today, how much these programs actually help patients and the push to see them spread nationwide. From the studio at the Leonard Davis Institute at the University of Pennsylvania, I'm Dan Gorenstein. This is Tradeoffs. Jeff Goldenberg walked into his daughter's hospital room. Talia sounded like Darth Vader. I mean, it was clear that she was having trouble breathing. She struggled to open her mouth all the way, making breathing that much harder. Within minutes, she vomited. Jeff could tell Talia was in a lot of pain that afternoon, and he was really worried about his 23-year-old daughter. Just a few hours earlier that February day in 2014, Talia's surgeon had told Jeff and his wife Naomi Kirtner that the procedure had gone well. He explained that he'd successfully fused the upper part of her spine to stabilize her neck, just what the two anxious parents had wanted to hear. Naomi whipped out her phone to mark the moment. We were over the moon. We had a selfie to show us smiling because we were so happy about how the surgery had gone. And we were going to show that to her when, when, when she was, you know, awake. The family had anticipated this day may come for months. Talia had been diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos at age 20, a rare disease where her tissues become overly flexible. Over the previous three years, Talia's condition had only deteriorated, discomfort morphing into bouts of agony. Talia captured her pain through her art. Naomi says one drawing depicting a tortured face, hand resting on the forehead, epitomizes how Talia felt in the months leading up to her surgery. The eyes to me are so sad and tender and quietly reflective. There's a pleading quality about it. Talia and her parents were pretty optimistic the procedure would stabilize Talia's neck and all but end her frequent blinding headaches. Back in the waiting room, the surgeon had predicted Talia would be up soon, walking the hospital halls. Instead, here she was, struggling to even breathe. Naomi and Jeff urged the staff to check out her breathing. The hospital sent in a respiratory therapist. And he took his stethoscope and he's listening to her breathe while we can hear her breathing. And he just said, she's fine. She's, she's, there's not a problem here. Naomi and Jeff were dumbfounded. The breathing, the vomiting, the severe pain. As a physician of 25 years, it was obvious to Jeff their daughter was in distress. I wasn't in Talia's room for five minutes before I was doing this sort of thing in my mind, like, yeah, I know I don't speak up and, you know, I don't want to throw my weight around, but my God, Talia's going to die. Jeff and Naomi did speak up, advocated for their daughter, and it did help some. The hospital agreed to transfer Talia to the ICU. 
She seemed to be stabilizing, and for the first time since she'd gotten out of surgery, a nerve-wracking eight hours, Naomi and Jeff felt they could take a breath. The couple agreed to step away from the bedside for a few hours to sleep and be back with Talia in time for her surgeon's check-in. Jeff returned to his daughter's room at 7 a.m., but Talia said the doctor had already come. The first words that Talia said when I got to her bedside were, I wish you'd been here, Papa. They wouldn't listen to me. And she went on to explain that, uh, you know, the neurosurgeon and his team didn't address her breathing concerns and, in fact, told her that they were going to arrange to transfer her out of the ICU because she was doing so well. Over much of those 24 hours, Jeff and Naomi felt dismissed, ignored. It was it was disturbing. It was terrifying. Yeah, it was really frightening, like something was really wrong. Talia was struggling to swallow droplets of water. The only clinician to examine her breathing that day was a speech therapist. Desperate for help, Talia asked a patient Facebook group for advice. They were all terrified that Talia's throat would close and that she would suffocate. Every bit of her concentration felt like it was going to her breathing. She was just trying to breathe. Talia continued to deteriorate over the course of the morning and into the afternoon. At 1.26 on February 11th, 2014, Talia gasped for air. But if you can imagine the last minute of somebody with a pillow being held down over their face as they're strangled, that's what happened. Jeff screamed for the doctors, please cut a hole in her neck right now. By the time staff did the emergency procedure to get air into Talia's lungs, 18 minutes had passed. Her brain had gone without oxygen for too long. She was in a coma. Nine days later, Naomi and Jeff took Talia off life support. To this day, Jeff continues to replay the whole scene. Should he have flashed his credentials sooner? Was there someone else he should have called? How could he have missed meeting with Talia's surgeon? I have never figured out why Talia didn't get the care she needed. And it, it, you know, I tell people sometimes trying to sort this out is like somebody putting me in a round room and telling me to piss in a corner. I mean, it doesn't matter how many times I go over and over and over this. It does not make sense. To make it worse, the hospital offered no explanation, no apology. Jeff and Naomi were in shock. When there's medical error and you're a parent, it gets very messy because you do feel responsible. And then you're up against people who aren't taking their share of responsibility in this. And so all you're left with is your guilt. With the hospital abdicating responsibility, Jeff and Naomi found themselves taking on all of the guilt. The agony was so intense, Jeff decided he had to stop treating patients. I've got a trained doctor's brain, and I can't allow myself to be... a person who gives um, medical advice and medical attention because I can't bear the consequence of being wrong. 
a year after Talia's death, Jeff and Naomi sued the hospital, and they settled with the hospital. But that accountability that they craved, that never came. After the break, what it looks like when hospitals and doctors do take accountability in the wake of a medical error, and a new federal campaign to push more hospitals to address their mistakes in real time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Before the break, we heard the isolation, guilt, and anger a family lives with after losing their daughter to a medical error. Mistakes like this are killing tens of thousands of Americans every year. Over the past two decades, a growing number of hospitals have built programs to catch mistakes and help harmed patients. The Biden administration has made patient safety a priority. This fall, a presidential commission released a report with recommendations on how to reduce medical errors. Reporter Alex Olgan joins me to talk about that report and how healthcare leaders want more effective ways to address patient harm. Hey, Alex. Hi, Dan. So in September, the people appointed to this White House commission called on President Biden to make patient safety a national priority. First on their agenda, the need to do a better job of tracking medical errors. That means basically, right, Alex, the need for more data. Now, what sort of data is collected right now? What's the baseline? Well, Dan, reporting on medical errors has been mostly local, spotty, and voluntary. Federal health officials do keep information on infections and falls, and 26 states do require reporting, but it's really for the most serious errors, like the wrong surgery or getting the wrong medication. The reality, Dan, is that no one knows how many errors happen, let alone how many are deadly. Estimates range from 250,000 a year to 22,000. Okay, so requiring hospitals to report errors potentially could help us get a handle on the scope of the problem. But Alex, it seems like the bigger question is, how do you catch a problem early before it leads to death? Like what happened with Talia? Yeah, that's exactly the problem that the White House Commission is trying to address. And part of their solution is to look to the airline industry. Okay, go on. The airline industry has done a good job of creating a system and a culture of reporting safety. In healthcare, guilt, shame, and fear of lawsuits have prevented hospitals and doctors from admitting an error, even if the person is dead. Patient safety experts have spent the last 25 years trying to figure out how to reduce that fear. But before we get to the latest thinking on that, Dan, I want to take you through three eras of medical mistakes over 50 years. Okay, tall order, but I'm excited for your ambition. (laughs) Okay, good. So the first one is what I'm calling the Hyde-It era. Back in the 1970s, there was a lot of fear about making medical errors and admitting them. Doctors were supposed to be infallible. If you copped one, it signaled you were reckless and just a bad doctor, and it opened you up to getting sued. 
sounds like that fear is what really drove this silence. Yeah, Dan, that's right. And let me tell you a quick story about how this fear manifested. When Dr. Stephen Kurachek was a resident, he gave a patient the wrong dose of penicillin. The elderly cancer patient ended up on a ventilator. And, um, and basically, I hit it, which was commonplace. Stephen remembers his senior doctor pulling him aside. And um, said, um, Stephen, I know you know what happened. I said, yes, and I'm terribly sorry, and I, I feel badly. And he said, well, I don't want you to worry too much about it because it's the first of many errors, and you have to move past it. Stephen kept his mistake from the family, and that his mistake meant the patient likely died faster. His guilt has stayed with him for nearly 45 years. I mean, we're talking about an event in 1979, and I'm still ashamed. But I recall so well not telling that spouse what had happened. I just didn't have the courage. Doctors and nurses, Dan, only actually began saying, I made a mistake and I'm sorry in the late 1990s. Alex, that's a pretty big shift in just 20 years. Some doctors and nurses going from hiding errors to apologizing for them. What drove that shift? So the Institute of Medicine published a seminal paper in 1999, and that shined a light on the problem. The report estimated that as many as 98,000 people die from medical errors a year. So this report was really the first effort at getting a sense of how big this problem was? Yeah, exactly. And it got the attention of President Bill Clinton. Let me be clear about one thing. Ensuring patient safety is not about fixing blame. It's about fixing problems. All of a sudden, there was some real momentum. Congress poured $50 million into research to decrease errors. 39 states and Washington, D.C. passed laws encouraging doctors to apologize to their patients. This is what I'm calling the disclosure era. Okay, so in this disclosure era, Alex, nurses, doctors, other medical staff are acknowledging mistakes and apologizing for them. But you said they were historically afraid to do this. Did these new laws make those fears go away? Well, these apology laws offered some protection from lawsuits. But it's not like clinicians were put in some hermetically sealed bubble. There was still some exposure to litigation. But the disclosure era, Dan, that was really the start of a culture change and the beginning of the era that we're in right now, which I'm calling the fix-it era. The seeds of this really start in the early 2000s. And Julie Morath was on the cutting edge in her role as chief operating officer of Minnesota Children's Hospital. We had to learn to talk about it. When things go wrong, I was often behind the curtains and veiled in secrecy. And it's hard, but it's people's sense of guilt, failure, reputation, all create barriers. And so we needed a new vocabulary and a new way to talk about this. Under Julie, the hospital took accountability and began fixing the systems behind the mistakes. Here was the new idea. The source of the problem, in most cases, was poor communication and a bad process, not bad doctors and nurses. 
At Minnesota Children's, staff and parents began reporting errors. And that, Julie says, helped the hospital address some systemic issues. And we kept up a steady drumbeat that safety was part of everything we did. There was a different level of transparency. Alex, this sounds like a big improvement, but can you give me an example of how this worked in practice? Yeah, I can. Remember Stephen? Sure, the doctor who hid that medication error back in the 1970s. Right. So fast forward 30 years, he's working at Children's under Julie's new transparency program. And he has another serious medication mistake. But in this new system, he handles it totally differently. He tells the patient's family right away. And in the following weeks, doctors revamped the medication order process to protect against a repeat. Dan, this program is a blueprint for what today are known as Communication and Resolution Programs, or CRPs for short. Another great health policy acronym, Alex. I love them all. Uh, Can you please break down the key components of this CRP, please? Sure. First, every potential error triggers a review and a conversation with patients. If the hospital finds it's their fault, they offer patients compensation in the form of services and or money. And this part is key, Dan. Much of this information cannot be included in a lawsuit. That makes doctors and hospitals feel comfortable about being totally upfront. Now, an estimated 400 hospitals have these programs, but that's only about 6% of all hospitals. So this sounds much more comprehensive, but as you said, only a couple of hundred hospitals are doing this, so there's probably not great data. But Alex, do we know how well these programs are working? You are right, Dan. The data is limited. There are three studies from individual hospitals that did find liability costs dropped and cases were resolved faster than going to court. And then there is an independent study of four hospitals in Massachusetts that found that CRPs didn't lead to an increase in liability costs. According to Tom Gallagher, the leading researcher in the field at the University of Washington, the most definitive thing we can say is that these CRPs do not raise liability costs. For many, many years, people were very concerned that if we were more open with patients about harm events, there would be an avalanche of litigation. That is clearly not the case. And Dan, when it comes to the patients, in surveys, they report feeling less angry or betrayed and more likely to keep getting care at the same hospital. And that's exactly what happened with Jack Gentry, a 70-year-old who lives outside of Baltimore. In April 2013, an instrument bruised his spinal cord during a surgery at Maryland-based MedStar Health. He was paralyzed from the upper chest down. MedStar took responsibility. Plus, they pay for his medical bills, wheelchairs, and there's a lump sum settlement too. Those things just may be capable or allow me to focus on getting better um, and work on my rehab. A lot of people around the country, Dan, point to Jack's story as an example of how this works. But the thing that's weird, at least to me, is that he's one of the few people that I've found who's had success with one of these CRPs. Alex, do you think a lack of anecdotes means these programs aren't working? That's a hard question to answer, and it's because of this transparency paradox. In exchange for hospitals and doctors being totally open about their mistakes, they want protection from lawsuits. So the discussions and settlements with patients are often secret. And all of this confidentiality makes it really hard to evaluate these programs. 
sounds like these models may not increase litigation costs for hospitals and patients report being satisfied, but still there's a lot we just don't know about whether communication and resolution programs really work. Given that, Alex, what's your best sense? Are we going to see more of these programs or what? I think so, Dan, and for three reasons. Money, politics, and patients. I say money because some malpractice insurers are pushing hospitals to adopt these models in hopes of saving money. And politics because people who have suffered are putting more public pressure on lawmakers. Combined, these lobbying efforts have led six states, like Colorado and Iowa, to pass laws that make it easier for hospitals to deal with these problems and keep it all outside of court. And then you've got this White House commission, right? Yeah, and they're pushing federal health officials to require all 6,000 hospitals to adopt CRPs in the next five years or face financial penalties. Tom, the researcher from the University of Washington, says he's already heard from hospitals. They got the memo. Ideally, healthcare organizations would be motivated solely by the sort of the moral and ethical reasons why programs make sense. But the, the reality is to have this elevated to that level is going to be very helpful in terms of organizations deciding what to focus on. Alex, it sounds like there's more momentum for this than there ever has been. Over the last two decades, patient safety advocates have been thinking about how to solve problems from a hospital's perspective, how to incentivize the hospitals, the doctors, the nurses to speak up. But bringing it back to patients, it seems also like they've been a bit of an afterthought. So I'm curious, are these programs as good for the patients as they might be for the hospitals? The field is starting to research whether patients are getting what they need. One thing that's interesting about this research is that it's being funded by patients and families who've been hurt. Alex, thanks so much for your reporting on this. You're welcome, Dan. One of the families funding this work is Jeff Goldenberg and Naomi Kurtner. They've spent the better part of the last decade trying to improve patient safety after their daughter Talia's death. Jeff and Naomi do this work because they want to give patients a voice. They feel like their daughter's voice was literally taken from her the day she fell into a coma. We didn't choose patient safety the way some people do. We came to it because of Talia's death. But so we feel morally obligated then to do something about it. It's grueling, it's exhausting, and it takes from us. Jeff says the message behind their research is this. Show up for your patients in good times and in bad. To abandon patients after you harm them is like you're leaving them alone at their point of greatest need. I mean, you're either caring for them or you're not. And caring for them means caring for them all the way. Even when you screw something up, they don't stop being your patients and they don't stop deserving that kind of care just because you've hurt them. As far as Jeff and Naomi are concerned, the point when providers internalize that message, that will be a success. I'm Dan Gorenstein. This is Tradeoffs.
If you enjoyed today's episode of Trade-Offs, don't keep it to yourself. Tell someone else about it. Friend, colleague, family member. Better still, leave a rating or a review wherever you subscribe to us. NPR One, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. We're in all the places. The Trade-Offs team is producers Alex Olgan and Ryan Levy, editors Kate Cahan and Deborah Franklin, executive director Jessica Silverman, marketing director Catherine Dougal, audience engagement lead Shannon Crane, research reporter Soleil Shah, with help from Kate Seepy, Kelly Osmondson, and Cedric Wilson. Sound designer Andrew Perella, executive editor Dan Gorenstein, and senior producer Leslie Walker. The Trade-Offs theme song was composed by Ty Sitterman, with additional music this episode from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. Tradeoffs coverage on diagnostic excellence is supported in part by the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation. Additional thanks to Rick Boothman, Carol Hemmelgarn, Florence LaCroix, Jean Martin, Doug Salvador, Leilani Schweitzer, and Melinda Van Neel. Our media partner is Side Effects Public Media, based at WFYI. Tradeoffs is supported by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, Arnold Ventures, West Health, the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, the Sozose Foundation, California Healthcare Foundation, Just Trust, the Leonard Davis Institute of Health Economics at the University of Pennsylvania, and the National Institute for Healthcare Management Foundation. The views expressed in this episode are those of the individuals and not those of trade-off staff, advisors, or funders. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.